0: I had a professor in college who defined faith as honesty about dependency, honesty about your dependency. And I think that's as good of a definition, a biblical definition as any, really, for what faith is. It works pretty well when a baby is crying because he wants to be fed by his mother. He is being honest about his dependence on her. She is the only one who can perform the task. She's the only one he trusts. In other words, she's the only one he has faith in, honesty about dependency. When a person is utterly distraught over the lack of money in their checking account and they're looking at the bills and the amount due on them, they are being honest about their dependence on money. They trust in money. To be able to pay the bills. They have faith in the money to do so. Honesty about dependency. When a person grows older and gets angry that they cannot see or hear as well as they used to. They cannot remember things like they used to be able to remember them. They are being honest about their dependence on their physical health. Their body is what allows them to communicate and move and think. They have faith in their body. People trust in their bodies to do the things that they have always done. And when they cannot do those things anymore, they often become resentful because what can I have faith in now? That's the first commandment too. You shall have no other gods. What do you fear, love, and trust in? That's how Luther defines the first commandment. What do you fear, love, and trust in above God? Anything that you fear, love, and trust in above God is an idol that you have faith in, that you depend on. You could summarize the first commandment or you could reword it this way. Don't depend on anything else above God. Now, you can depend on those things, just not above God. You can depend on other people to feed you. You can depend on money. You can depend on your body, but don't depend on it more than you depend on God. Childlike faithfulness, devotion, honesty about dependency, trust. That is the first and greatest commandment. And what happens in the gospel reading for today in Mark chapter 8, the feeding of the 4,000. It is a beautiful image, a beautiful painting, if you will. Of this faith, of this kind of faith, of exactly that kind of devotion, that kind of honesty about dependency. I would argue that the crowds and the disciples, which is kind of surprising, and Jesus himself paint for us, they they draw for us this magnificent picture of what faithfulness looks like in life. A picture that we would do well to imitate. And so that's what we're going to consider this morning. What does faith look like? We'll start with the crowds first. The first thing that we learn about the crowds is that this is a great crowd. This is a numerous crowd. Eventually we get the number 4,000. First, Mark just records it as a great crowd. And if you read Matthew's accounting of the feeding of the 4,000, you find out it's not just great. It's also diverse or varied You have people who are blind, you have people who are crippled, you have people who are lame. I would venture that you would also have people who are poor, people who are rich, people who can hear and walk and see just fine as well. All sorts of people there following Jesus, a great crowd, a numerous and varied crowd. On top of it being numerous and varied, A lot of commentators will also point out that this is probably a predominantly Gentile crowd. Matthew, which is more detailed, although, in my opinion, a little more boring than Mark's gospel. Mark is more adventurous. He's always going somewhere and getting to the point. In Matthew's gospel, you get the location of where this happens, which is by the Sea of Galilee up on the mountain, which is kind of a a Gentile region. And you also have the number 7 instead of the number 12 like you have with the feeding of the 5,000 when there's the leftovers that are counted. This is probably one of the differences between the feeding of the 5,000, which happens before this, and the feeding of the 4,000. Sometimes people get confused why there's two different feedings. I think the two main differences are that, one, you have the uh, Israelite feeding of the 5,000. That's a predominantly Jewish area. And then you have the Gentile feeding of the 4,000 in a predominantly Gentile region. And the other difference is that in the feeding of the 5,000, it's more of a feast where this is more of an emergency food feeding. So those are the kind of differences, just so you're aware. But in this feeding of the 4,000, the point here is that they're Gentiles. And if that's the case, there's no reason for them to be there. What is the social or religious reason for these Gentiles to go and listen to a rabbi speak for three days? It's normal for Israelites to go and listen to rabbis in the temple, to go and hear what they have to say to become a disciple of a rabbi and listen to their teacher. But these are people who have no real reason, at least socially or religiously, to hear him. And so it's a big crowd It's a Gentile crowd who has no reason for hearing them. And on top of all of that, they're there for three straight days. They don't stop listening to him. They hold on to every word that he's saying three days straight. And what I think all of that adds up to when you add up those those three points, big, Gentile, long. This is a message worth hearing what Jesus is saying must be be worth hearing? Why else would they be there? Why would there be so many of them, and why would they be there for so long if this message was not so incredibly valuable to them? And that is because, as you should well know, Jesus' words are words of power. Jesus' words are words that are different than any words the world can ever give you. The world will give you lots of words, endless words. There are many TV channels, many people constantly talking, many social medias, many places you can listen to people talk nonstop nowadays, and people will listen to all sorts of people talk, listen to all sorts of words, but these words are different. These words are powerful. When Jesus speaks, things happen. When Jesus says, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, you are washed, you are cleansed, you are made his child. You are made an heir with Jesus Christ of eternal life. When he says, this is my body broken for you, this is my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins, it is the bread and the wine are his body and his blood given for you. For the forgiveness of sins, for life, for salvation. When he says to you, take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will have rest in your souls. You have rest. You have the peace of God which surpasses all human understanding. These words are not human. They are God's words. They are powerful words. And they are still worth hearing today. That is why I must keep preaching. That is why we do what we do here week in and week out, why I can't stop saying this message. This is why I preach probably longer than you want me to preach, or at least than maybe previous pastors have preached before, because these words are worth hearing. And that's not about me. It's about Jesus. It's about his words. These words must be heard. This message must be proclaimed. The good news of repentance and faith. The good news of sorrow and darkness turned into joy and light. The good news that you are justified. You are made righteous before the Father. There is nothing that can stand against you, no one that can stand against you. You will be vindicated on the last day. You will be called righteous if you have faith in him. This message of salvation. They are words worth hearing. Words worth hearing for the 50 or so people here every Sunday. Hopefully there will be even more. Words worth hearing for the 4,000 that would not let go of these words on the mountain with Jesus. Words worth hearing for everybody in DeSoto County and Shelby County and Marshall County and the rest. Words worth hearing for all nations. All nations, Jesus says, go forth to all nations and say these words. Teach them everything I have commanded you because I desire all to be saved. Words worth hearing because they're worth everything. Because it's the message, the one thing needful the one treasure no one can take away from you, the eternal treasure, eternal life. It's a message worth hearing. And the crowds are faithful to hear it. They are honest about their dependency to hear it. They are devoted to hear it. Notice these two details Mark gives us. One, they had nothing to eat. That's, of course, the occasion for the the miracle. And two, not only are they a great numerous varied crowd that's there with him for a long time, but a lot of them are from, quote, far away places. I have to wonder what was going through these people's minds as they were packing to go on this trip with Jesus. All right, honey, I'm off to go follow Jesus and listen to his teaching for a while. We're going to go up on this mountain. I'm going to be gone for three days. Well, would you like to pack some lunch with you? No, that's okay. I don't need food. It'll be fine. I'm sure it'll we can just stop at the McDonald's over there by the Sea of Galilee, you know, because that existed at the time. Probably not. What was going through their minds? Maybe they actually had heard of the feeding of the five thousand. I think this might be a possibility. They had heard of the feeding of the five thousand and they thought Jesus will just do that. Right. He'll just provide for us whenever we need provided for. And that would be a great act of faith if that is the case. But regardless of what they were thinking when they were packing for their trip to go listen to the teaching and preaching of Jesus. I think we can say this. That their devotion to come from faraway places and not have food. It is a sign of faith. It is a sign of devotion. They are honest about their dependency on Jesus Christ at least on his words, I can't help but to think of this word, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the very mouth of God himself. Imagine having a word like that. Imagine having a word that is worth foregoing food for, that is worth foregoing comfort for, that is worth traveling for. We have had and we have people in this congregation who travel to hear this word. come all the way down from places like Sinatobia or around there. We have had people who came from up towards Millington to hear this word. And why? Because when you realize what this word is, you realize how much it is worth giving up anything for, everything for, traveling three days with Jesus for, traveling 60, 70 miles for, going to find the word wherever it is to be found. Imagine having that kind of word, and you have it. And so imitate the crowds in this. Be like the crowds in this. Treat the word for what it is worth. Do not neglect the word in your life, not just in coming to church, but also in your own devotional life at home. Do not neglect the hearing, the reading, the studying of his word. Be faithful like the crowds. Now, the second part of this faithfulness image that we're painting here is maybe not what you would expect, but I believe it's the disciples. Now, in the feeding of the 5,000, you definitely get the disciples doubt. In the feeding of the 5,000, whenever the crowds are there, the disciples go up to Jesus and they, they say, Jesus, we can't do this. Send the crowds away. Send them back to get their own food at home. That doesn't happen here. Here they ask the question, how can one feed these people in this desert place, in this desolate place? And you could take that, again, as a question of doubt. How can anyone do this, Jesus? We can't can't do this. I think, however, that they had learned from the feeding of the 5,000, and that this question is not a question of doubt, but it is actually a question of faith. Jesus, we don't know how, but we know that you will. It's not if, it's how. How can one do this, Jesus? You tell us, tell us what to do, and we'll do it. And regardless of if that's in the disciples' minds or not, we can't really get totally into their minds. I just think that's a textual possibility. Regardless of that, that is how you should approach prayer with Jesus. Not if, but how. Not if Jesus will comfort you in the midst of your distress, in the midst of all the stresses that you have in life. Not if Jesus will show you the way that you should go. Not if Jesus will be there to help you, when people are unjust to you and anger you, not if he will vindicate you on the last day, but how. Ask him to show you how he will comfort you. Ask him to show you how he will give you justice. Ask him to show you how he will vindicate you. Ask him to show you where in your life you should look for these things. Ask him to show you his word. Ask him to show you his grace. Ask him to show you his mercy. Because with Jesus, he promises great and abundant mercy and grace and comfort and also many different kinds of promises to you. And the question for the Christian is not if he will fulfill his promises, if you're lucky. The question for the Christian is how, when, what does it look like, where is it, let me see it. Prayer is not a matter of arguing with God about if he's going to, answer his promises to you, prayer is the Christian holding God to his promises which he has already swore to you in his covenant. Prayer for the Christian is not discerning if God is going to keep his promises. It's discerning when God is going to make his promises manifest in your life. And unsurprisingly, Jesus does this then for the disciples when they are honest about their dependence on him to make his promises manifest in their life, he feeds his people. Of course he does. He has the power to do so. His words are power. He is eternal life. And it is certainly no surprise then that when Jesus feeds his people the food that they need for the journey, when they're up on the mountain and they've been struggling and they haven't eaten for three days, and they're far away from home. It is not surprising that he feeds them the same way that he decides to feed his people for the rest of New Testament history, even up to this very moment today. He takes bread. He takes bread, and he looks up to heaven, and he gives thanks for the bread. And he gives it to his disciples, and he breaks it. And he gives it to even to, these are the apostolic disciples here. These are the pastors, if you will. He gives it to the pastors to distribute to the people on his behalf. And in the same way, in just a little bit here, he will take bread in his stead. I will take the bread and I will give thanks to it in his stead and I will break it. And as an apostolic minister of his word and sacrament, I will distribute it to his people. And he will feed his people in both body and soul to life everlasting. This is how Jesus feeds. One of the ways in which Jesus feeds and provides bread and nourishment for the journey, for the hard journey of this life. And he gives you exactly what you need. And finally, notice that in this great miracle that Jesus does, in order to do it, part of the answer to the question, how, As he asked his disciples, what do you have? How many loaves do you have? Seven loaves. And they give it to him. They give it all to him. And this certainly is an image of faithfulness. This certainly is part of the image of devotion to Christ, that they simply give everything that they have to him. this is also an image, I'd be remiss not to mention this, this is an image of stewardship. For almost a year now, we've been talking about stewardship on and off as part of our Stewardship Under the Cross program. And this is stewardship under the cross. This is stewardship under the blessing of Jesus Christ. Stewardship is actually really easy when you recognize what the disciples recognize here. Stewardship does not have to be a difficult teeth-pulling type of exercise. Stewardship does not have to be something that pastors are afraid to talk about to their people because of different connotations that go along with it. Stewardship is really easy when you recognize this thing that the disciples recognize. That stewardship is whole life. Whole life stewardship. That's what we're about here. That's what the disciples are about, that they give everything to him. He asks for what they have, and they give it all to him. It is easy when you recognize that it is all his to begin with. Every amount of wealth that you have, every loaf of bread that you have, every fiber of your being that is existent in this world, every moment of time, every second passing on the ticking clock, it is his to begin with. Why is it his? Because he created it. Because he sustains it. Because he gives it to you to steward. Everything is stewardship. And when you realize that, it is easy to give some back to him. It is easy to simply ask him, what do you need? Jesus. And when you study his word, you find out it's all really rather simple. He wants a little bit of your wealth to keep the church going. 10% 10% is the normal biblical amount. It could be more, it could be less. Ask him and pray and you'll figure it out. He wants a little bit of your time. Probably at least an hour on Sunday mornings, I'd imagine. Maybe a little bit more time during the week to study his word like we talked about. And he wants a little bit of your Talents to help the church out with the things that need helping with. If you're good at pulling carpet, let me know. And that's one way you can help on Saturday. It's not that hard. Just ask him. Ask him what he needs and he will let you know. Whole life stewardship. And with this faithfulness and with this stewardship, he will bless it. Finally, dear saints, notice this about this image of faithfulness that we're painting here with Mark chapter 8. This is not just an image of faithfulness of the crowds and the disciples to Christ. It's also an image of faithfulness of Christ to his people. Faithfulness to him, to his word, with your stewardship. He blesses you with his faithfulness. Amazing things can happen when you are faithful to him and he is faithful back to you. It's a two-way street. It's an ongoing relationship. When he is faithful to you, he is beyond faithful. Whenever he feeds his people, it should not surprise us that with seven loaves, if they're modern-sized loaves, maybe that would give like 50 people, half a sandwich, no meat or cheese. He takes just seven loaves and feeds 4,000 people. 4,000 people and there are leftovers. Faithfulness upon faithfulness. John says that whenever Christ comes, what comes is grace upon grace. Grace upon grace, faithfulness upon Upon faithfulness. Christ's grace, Christ's faithfulness to you, it is not a zero sum game. A little bit for me, more for me, does not mean less for you. It is something that multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. The Psalter talks about it this way that when Christ comes, His grace comes and it fills up your cup, and your cup overflows. And when your cup overflows, there are cups under it that fill up with the overflowing mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. And those cups fill up and overflow and those cups fill up and overflow and it multiplies and multiplies and multiplies. It's like a seed bearing plant. When the plant comes up out of the ground, it bears fruit, and inside each one of those fruits is hundreds and hundreds of little seeds, each to be their own plant with all their own fruit, with all their own seeds, and a hundredfold multiplication. Christ's grace and mercy is abundant. It multiplies. This is its nature. Grace upon grace, fullness upon fullness. And when there are leftovers, there are leftovers, the fullness of leftovers. The biblical number of fullness, seven. There are seven baskets full left over, which means there will be leftovers forever. Never to disappear, never to be taken away from his people. And so today, dear saints, be honest about your dependency on Christ. He is the one who can provide. He is the one who can feed his people and let his faith to you overflow in your life so that all who would hear it would hear the message of salvation to christ be all the honor and glory now and forever amen